Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. My relationship with God has always been an important part of my life. In fact, the most important part of my life. And because of that, I've also taken scripture seriously ever since I was a kid. In fact, Bible Man was one of my favorite shows that I watched growing up. And now in my master's degree that I've almost finished with in biblical languages and biblical literature, I have been exposed to so many incredible scholars who study this part of the Bible very intentionally and with great excellence. And it brings the stories and the poems to life in a whole new way. And I see how truly the whole Bible is a single unified story, Uh, a story that leads to Jesus, a story that talks about humanity, a story that talks about the greatest plot narrative of all existence, so much more. And one of my goals with this podcast, one of the reasons why I'm doing this, is not only for me to get to share the things that I've been learning and things that I enjoy getting to talk about, but one of my main goals is I want to get some of these incredible scholars that either I've gotten to study with or maybe scholars that I've just read an article that they wrote or a book or listened to an interview and bring them to this space where anyone can learn from and, uh, and listen to them. Because oftentimes, the only way you can learn from these type of scholars is if you go to a university or if you have access to an academic journal or an academic library. And that's just simply tough for for most of us to be able to do. So today, our guest I'm very excited about, Dr. Nathan French. He has been one of my professors in my master's degree, and he's been the one overseeing my my thesis and uh, I'll be learning Akkadian with him in my last semester, in my master's degree. He is phenomenal. He has been incredibly helpful to me as I learn to be an excellent researcher. What does that look like to do excellent biblical research? How do we approach things? Also, he's been great for how do we approach things like archaeology and the history of the Israelite people and so much more. Uh, He's a great man. I can tell you that from from what I know of him. He's one of the scholars who I've gotten to know personally. So I'm very excited for you guys to get to learn from him and as I have gotten to learn from him. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Matthew Delaney, and today I have a very special guest with us, Dr. Nathan French, and I'm very excited to have him on board. He has been my thesis advisor. I'll be learning Akkadian with him soon. And he has a PhD in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East studies. So uh, there's a lot to be excited about today. We have plenty of good stuff planned. Uh, so anyway, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Matthew. It's, ex- it's exciting to be here. So. So I wonder first if you can just tell us a little about your background. I mean, I, I don't run into many people with a PhD in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East studies. That just doesn't happen very often. You don't go to the gas station or, you know, you're not working out, ask somebody what they do. You have a fascinating background. Um, it's extremely relevant for, I think, a lot of stuff that, you know, my audience would love to get to learn about. But I would love to hear first just the journey. How did you get there and what did that look like? Yeah, well, my journey into Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern studies really began here at Oral Roberts University when I was an undergraduate student. I was actually studying uh, theological and historical studies uh, in my undergraduate work, though I was minoring in modern Hebrew with uh, the great Lenore uh, Lindsay Mulliken, uh, wow. Mora, as I know that uh, you you had her as a teacher as well. Yep. 
Um, so very um, significant impact uh, on my life during that time. So anyways, was studying uh, theologians and doing systematics in church history and came quickly to the conclusion that uh, the systematicians of the church uh, and the great thinkers in theology in the past were in fact uh, ardent students of the Bible. They were biblical scholars, we might even say to, uh, to an extent. And so um, I knew I knew right then and there that my interests for pursuing Hebrew Bible uh, and biblical studies uh, is what I wanted to do in my graduate work uh, moving forward from there. So on top of that, I had done some study in Israel in 2007 uh, for, uh, for modern Hebrew. Uh, so I spent the summer there and had visited the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, looking at their programs, uh, visited University of Haifa, uh, ultimately deciding that if I did pursue uh, biblical studies in Hebrew Bible, that I would definitely want to uh, maybe go to the Hebrew University uh, and pursue that. So what I did though, uh, that next summer, I graduated in 2008 with my undergraduate uh, degree here at ORU. I applied to the Hebrew University uh, in 2009. So I made the decision, what I was going to do was do a year of biblical Hebrew here in the seminary uh, at Oral Roberts University, having already done so much modern Hebrew. Um, I thought it, uh, I would jump into biblical Hebrew here. So I took uh, Professor, I jumped into Professor Brad Young's uh, program uh, in Judaic Christian Studies here, uh, which is really looking at the New Testament uh, within a ancient Jewish context. So uh, very fascinating there. Took uh, biblical Hebrew with, uh, with uh, Professor Mulliken uh, and uh, some classes with Brad. Though I applied at that same time uh, to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem um, for the following year. Sorry, this is actually 2008 that I'm doing this. So, uh, um, and with the intent that if accepted, I would go to Hebrew University then and not finish my program uh, at ORU in the master's degree. Um, so that led me then I was accepted. And in 2009, I took off in the fall for Jerusalem and lived there for two years, pursuing a degree in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern studies. Um, so it was really great to study Jesus in his context. Uh, in, in, in Professor Brad Young's program, I then went to Hebrew uh, University and went back even further and fell absolutely in love with the ancient Near East. And I'm trapped there. I can't get out of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how much we have in common. I know we both studied under Lenore Moloch, and I didn't realize you yeah. did a minor in modern Hebrew. And so you did Ulpan at Hebrew University of Jerusalem during your undergraduate time as well. Yeah, actually, yeah, actually uh, Ulpan at... Uh, at the University of, of Haifa, actually, oh, Haifa. Okay. and visited and visited uh, the university uh, or Hebrew University when I was uh, when I was there. So I hope you realize how to, I hope you realize yeah, how jealous ahead. so many people are. That I mean, you <laughs> you talked about how you learned about Jesus in his you know ancient Jewish context with Brad Young, but then you even more literally went to study Jesus in his context, going in Israel there for your master's degree. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how awesome was that have been walking around? Obviously I was there for, you know, five weeks doing an old pond. Uh, you were there for a couple of years, right? And mm -hmm. yeah, living there, yeah, I can I, imagine. I, amazing. I mean, it was, it was really one of the best times of my life. I always think back on that time um, very positively. Absolutely loved living in the land, 
being with the people, uh, traveling, traveling around was wonderful. I mean, you just can't be being in the land studying Hebrew Bible okay. and Hebrew in general. Okay, so, so a quick pop uh, question. Um, uh -huh. uh, if you, there's any one spot you had to recommend, someone's going to go to Israel, they're going to go there for a week or two, and they want the Dr. Nathan French recommendation, what place would you recommend you got to <laughs> stop by? I know it's the impossible question. There's too much to do in Israel. Yeah, yeah. boy, yeah. Um, I would say you got to go to Lina's Hummus, which is off of the Via Della Rosa in the old city. That's where you have to go. It's the yeah. best hummus in all of Jerusalem. I had a dear friend. We would go after uh, after classes sometimes, and we would get lunch at Lina's Hummus. Love and uh, we still talk about Lina's all the time. So Almost that would be a spot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So you know, you oh, can. Yeah. Uh, are you in agreement? Is it the best? Oh, hummus it's amazing. Yes. Did you did you find <laughs> that hummus was ruined for you when you came back to the states? There's nowhere oh, I can, there's nowhere no, I can get hummus at. It just doesn't. No, it's can. not the same. It's, it's it's the it's the best hummus and hummus with meat on it. Uh, at uh, oh, uh, I'm trying to think of that one restaurant outside Jerusalem. I can't remember the name, but uh, ooh, man, really best best hummus you can find. So so you get your master's degree in Israel, uh, but you don't stop there. You're gonna go all the way get the PhD. So well, that's right. So I was uh, at the time. Uh, uh, dating my girlfriend, who uh, is now my wife, she came to visit the year before I returned from Hebrew University, came to visit in Israel. So I proposed to her uh, on that visit in Israel on Har, uh, Har Arbel, uh, Mount wow. Arbel in the Galilee, overlooking uh, off, right there on that cliff, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. So what a story. Um, yeah, it was a story. And she actually carried her ring over from the States because I could not get the ring imported into Israel without paying a fortune. So I devised a plan and had it snuck into her luggage, actually, by uh, <laughs> by her. She didn't know she was carrying it. And um, it made it. We made it through security and all. And I was able then to propose up there on Horror Bell. So, Who knew? We have an um, academic and a romantic with us there today. You go, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so we got married then, end of 2011. I spent three years working at a. Presbyterian Church in Denver, Colorado. It's where my wife uh, is originally from, and she was finishing her second master's in clinical psychology and counseling at the Denver Seminary. Uh, and so we worked there for three years from 2011 to 2014. Now, in pursuing PhD programs, I knew I, I knew deeply that I really wanted to study in the UK. If that was an option that, that we could make happen, um, we, we were going to go that route. So I began looking at programs uh, focused in on Scotland, and I found a scholar, uh, Professor Lena Sophia uh, Tiemeyer, who currently uh, teaches in Sweden at the uh, at the Uberu, uh, School of Theology, I believe. Uh, so, sorry, Professor Tiemeyer, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, <laughs> she'll she'll let me know for sure. Um, uh, she teaches uh, Old Testament exegesis there. Uh, in Sweden, but at the time she was at the University of Aberdeen. Um, so I found uh, her profile, saw that she had studied her first two degrees she completed at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So her undergraduate work and her bachelor's, I'm sorry, her bachelor's and her graduate work, and then her PhD at the University of Oxford under Hugh Williamson. Uh, and so I proposed my topic uh, to her, sent the proposal. We met in uh, at SBL in Baltimore in 2013. Uh, we had some coffee 
and really knew that I wanted to uh, to pursue a PhD and study uh, with this particular project under her, was accepted. So my wife and I packed everything up, put it in storage. We moved in 2014 to Scotland, uh, where I pursued a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near Eastern Studies there in their divinity program. And uh, my wife also began pursuing a PhD there in practical theology under Professor John Swinton around the same time. We completed our work in around 2018. We returned to the States. Uh, we had our first son, Ezra, then. Uh, and I, uh, my wife and I were both hired here at Oral Roberts University. So now we're teaching here um, at ORU. Uh, previous to that, I was already teaching for Colorado Christian University for about, uh, going on about eight years now. So I teach for their uh, Old Testament program. Uh, and then um, teaching uh, now for Southeastern University as well, doing some Old Testament work for them. So uh, long story short, that's how I got to Scotland to pursue the PhD um, uh, from from Israel. So <laughs> so cool. Amazing story. And your power couple, both of you with PhDs and now both working <laughs> together. Very awesome. Yeah. Yes. Very good. So. so Today, you know, our main focus is going to be on the ancient Near East, which you've been ex you've been um, largely responsible for getting me super interested in this stuff too. Yeah, and so I think just a good first question, just to make sure we're all, all we're all on the same boat together here. Uh, maybe some of us have never heard of ancient Near East. What is that? It's like I read my, yeah. I, you know, yeah, I like the Old yeah. Testament. I read the Bible, but that yeah. phrase never appears. So what is this yeah. in a nutshell, and why does this matter? Yeah. So in a nutshell, I mean, it refers to the civilization in the ancient Near East. It refers to the civilizations of the ancient world that existed roughly from the you know fourth millennium BCE up until the Muslim conquest uh, in the seventh century CE. So it refers, you know, to the geographical area comprised uh, of, of what we would say the Middle East today. Um, talking about the the Fertile Crescent going from where the Persian Gulf is all the way sort of up by the Tigris and Euphrates over and down through the land of Israel. Uh, and then of course the Anatolian area, modern day Turkey and, and Egypt as well. So um, it refers to um, the study of that particular world uh, in its ancient, uh, in its ancient context. So we're, you know, we're dealing with all the great peoples. We have the Mesopotamians, we have Sumer, so the Sumerians, Egypt, we have um, we have the Hittites, right? The Anatolian Hittites, or uh, we could be dealing with the second millennium Amorites or Ugarit coming down into the Northwest Semitic world and the Phoenicians, ancient Israel and all of that. So it's what I like to call the pre-classical world, uh, uh, um, the study of the ancient Near East. So it was a term that was first, it was first uh, used in the 19th century uh, in context of the British Empire. So there's the Far East and the Near East. And so, of course, this is the ancient Near East. And that's where the term uh, comes from presently. So. Oh, that makes sense. I always wonder why it was Near East. So I guess that yeah. makes sense with the, it's, you know, it's the it's, British perspective. Yeah. That's yeah. what makes it. It's, it's near to the British Empire. So. <laughs> so I imagine we might be familiar with some things of ancient Near East, like we maybe heard of Hammurabi's Code. Um, you know, we know in the Bible, Babylon is mentioned, Egypt is mentioned. Uh, but I think for a lot of us, we are probably our only knowledge aside from one chapter of a world history book that we took in middle school is basically if whatever, only the things the Bible says about the ancient Near East. Now, obviously you've studied not just what we learned from the biblical text, of the ancient Near East, but yeah. through archeology, span extra biblical texts. And 
So I'm curious, what what got you so interested once once you were exposed to this world of the ancient Near East, of thousands of years of history in this ancient Middle East area? What what draw you to this so much, and what makes you still interested in it? Why you know what makes it so fascinating to you? Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. I, I uh, it's just incredibly interesting. I mean, what else what else can I say about it? It's it's ancient history, and um, I mean, in one sense, early on, it really brought the Hebrew Bible to life contextually in a way of uh, when it comes to interpretation, it really just opened up the text in a way that nothing else had up to that point uh, for me. So that that was sort of the initial draw to it. But apart from that alone, I mean, apart from that, it's just incredibly interesting. It's like my I have a dear friend. He always says any anything. Anything, and he's he's you know he's joking about this, but anything in five eighty six BCE and after is just post interesting, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So uh, again, joking aside, it is just very true that when you get into the study of the ancient Near East, you just find that there is a, a really um, deep and interesting connection to this world that uh, we all actually have. Uh, but, but don't really, don't really know about it. Cause we're not, we're not, it's not, you know, it, it tends to be that, that Western history goes back to the Greeks and the Romans. We don't tend to push it any further back than, uh, than that, except for the Hebrew Bible and the old Testament. I mean, that's where we really, uh, we really see a foundation there. Um, not realizing that that itself is a contextual, uh, corpus of texts within right. the ancient Near East. And, um, so I think, you know, I think we have that. We have the impact of the, uh, on the world and the, uh, the Western world that the ancient Near, Eastern ha- that the ancient Near East has. Uh, we, we have to think of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I mean, they're all deeply uh, connected and are from the, the ancient Near East. Um, there are other things, you know, for example, we could think of this, uh, the first, politically, the first, you know, you had asked, uh, you know, why does it matter, the study of the ancient Near East? So. Um, you could think this too, the first peace treaty, one of the first peace treaties ever signed was between the Hittites and the Egyptians uh, in 1274 BCE uh, between Ramesses II and uh, Muatali II. So the treaty tradition in the ancient Near East with covenants uh, is very important and it reaches even into the Roman era in its uh, its influence, uh, uh, thinking of Lawrence uh, in Kitchen and what they say there. So... um, yeah, go ahead. So I wonder if we can unpack that a little more. This is something we've yeah. talked about before in the past. Uh, there's a there's a slew of of academic opinions on um, on what is the actual story of the Exodus of Egypt and the God's covenant at Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. and there there are some theories where where people will say that that these stories are things that King Josiah in his reform that he mm-hmm. created as part of his political propaganda that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that these, so in, in essence, these stories are neo-Assyrian stories and, yeah. you know, and so obviously the, the covenant at, of Mount Sinai, the acts of Egypt, those are really critical, important stories in the biblical character and in the, in the biblical plot. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's a very interesting idea of someone to say, wow, are we saying that these stories didn't happen? And I remember you told me, I so wonder if you can kind of, pick up from here, there's some really interesting studies that people have done to show the types of treaties and Mm -hmm. um, kind of covenants made between um, vassal states and the more powerful nations. 
to actually yeah. parallel some biblical text. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very good. So, um, you know, uh, Kenneth Kitchen, uh, an evangelical uh, scholar, but a brilliant scholar of the ancient Near East, um, has written a lot on this treaty law and uh, covenant. And so his work is extensive in this area. But he, not only him, I think George Mendenhall, uh, previous to him, uh, has done a lot uh, in this area as well. And the real, the real question comes down to Deuteronomy, because what we find is that Deuteronomy has a structure and treaty form that is similar to the suzerain vassal treaties of the Anatolian Hittites from about the second um, mid-second millennium BCE, so 1500 to about 1200 BCE, uh, than it does any of the later treaty traditions that exist in the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian world. So if you can, if we can, um, if we can think about the timelines, we have 1500 BCE here. We have 586 BCE here, uh, where we have the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, between that time period, we have something that happens in the ancient Near East at about 1200 BCE to 1150, the ancient Near East goes dark. And during that time, empires fall, Egypt disappears, other city-states during that time disappear. There's just a great cataclysmic event of some sort that happens. And the reason that's important is because the Hittite empire itself disappears. And so Deuteronomy has, uh, 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 it has characteristics about it that are unique to those particular treaties of that time period that don't appear later in Israel's history. And of course, that is the time of, of, uh, of, of Moses uh, and then leading into Joshua and the conquest, if, if we were to place Moses around the time of Ramesses uh, II. Kenneth Kitchen and, 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 uh, and Lawrence, they take it a bit further. Um, I know that he thinks that, for example, Exodus and Leviticus sort of have that same treaty structure. Uh, and he, he would say that Exodus and Leviticus at one time were, in fact, one long treaty. Oh, interesting. Uh, puts it in, yeah, puts it in that form. So it's not to say, look, it's not to say that Deuteronomy itself does not have uh, characteristics and things about it, vocabulary. It's 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 uh, list of curses is extremely long, just like the Neo-Assyrians. Uh, it's not to say that those documents weren't updated at later times in Israel's history. We can assume that that was the case, of course. Uh, but it, it it is to say that there are features within Deuteronomy that are only unique uh, to the mid to late second millennium BCE. Uh, and so it, it seems to give, in my opinion, a good indication that these documents are coming down from an uh, from a, from a earlier time period. So Yeah, and I would very much agree. Because what's at stake yeah. here ultimately is, is there any core of, of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, that, that goes back to an earlier period. And yeah. there were some opinions in the scholarly world that would say, no, there is no core to this. Right. This is All of right. this is coming from um, the Neo-Assyrian or the Persian period. And um, yeah. archaeological record is very interesting in how you compare the way that trees yeah. were done, how it maps on. So I found that very yeah. fascinating. So it's just yeah. one of many examples, right, of the kind of stuff <laughs> yeah, that you can find exactly. in the ancient Eastern world. Yeah. And, and I mean, you and I have been discussing that, I know, at great length at other times, but uh, as you've been reading uh, some of the scholars that I, that I pointed you towards, you can find that there's a lot of evidence uh, pointing towards um, this time period of the mid-second millennium BCE and even later uh, into the late second millennium that's quite interesting uh, for these sorts of questions. So 
which I can't remember if you already pointed out, but that 1500 to 1200, that is the time period ish that people place Moses if they were right. About, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's no, exactly. somewhere in there. That, that's it. Yeah. That, that is it. I mean, the debate is between, you know, really the 1400s BC and then at Ramesses the second, which is, um, upwards of uh, re- really the 13th century BCE there, so the 1200s. And, and so it seems to be that scholars are leaning more towards uh, identifying markers in the book of Exodus at Ramesses II, okay. uh, which is which is quite interesting too. So it's a great discussion. There's a good book. I have a good book here. Uh, this, is, this is great. Did I not bring Israel out of Egypt? Mm. Uh, it's a collection of essays edited by Hofmeyer, Millard, and uh, Rendsburg. And of course, Hofmeyer, James K. Hofmeyer is really the Egyptologist to turn to in a lot of these questions. His work is fantastic. So excellent. Um, uh, and, and that book is really wonderful. That collection of essays. There's so many really interesting things uh, uh, in it. So yeah, love it. Yeah, all these resources have been so helpful to me and for anyone listening too. Realizing that there's a whole world of of incredible biblical scholarship that. Unfortunately, academia sometimes can feel a little separated from general popular, you know, you know, your person on the street. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can start bridging that gap a little bit because there are debates that happen and certain people, all they experience is that video on YouTube or Facebook or some blog post. But there's some really excellent scholarship being done that can help us to approach the Bible in a really healthy, holistic way. Uh, yeah. I want to I want to touch back on something that you brought up earlier. You you hinted mm-hmm. at this the Western approach to the ancient Near East. I feel like the way that I experienced the story of the ancient Near East, which is how I think many in the West do, is that it all comes down. It's it's basically saying that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then everything was extremely dark, evil, and wicked. And <laughs> then God did a miraculous work when the Persians tried to over tried to extend their empire into Greece. And the Battle of 300, you know, was the first work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and then Jesus came and everything is good. Yeah. And it, we, yeah. we imagine this battle between the Greeks and Persians. That if the Greeks yeah. lost that battle, an era of darkness, Mordor would have expanded its boundaries <laughs> all the way to the Shire. And it's only because of the Greeks that we, we have now saved and preserved democracy, goodness, ethics, morality, because everything else mm. to the east of that was, was um, just, just, you know, barbaric, Neanderthalic, even wicked. So I just wonder, obviously I'm being a little facetious here. I'm not saying this is how everyone talks about it, but it's kind of the impression we get is that we, as the West, we inherit a tradition of the Greco Roman world and thank yeah. God for that, you know? So what, and that's kind of the, our approach we take to it. So I wonder yeah. what are some misconceptions, you know, how do you approach some of these maybe misconceptions of the ancient Near East world? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a great, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, once you get into the study of the ancient Near Eastern peoples, you realize that um, there's a whole world back there that we're not really told about. I mean, as you're hinting at here, and it's rich, it's 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 extremely diverse. It has uh, amazing culture. You know, talking about some of the things that uh, that have impacted the modern world, we think of writing. Right, writing originates in the ancient Near East. It begins. Uh, in Sumer, it's adopted by the Akkadians right at the end of the fourth millennium BCE. Uh, and that writing is the first time at any point in human history that humans are actually writing history. That thing you do when you write down uh, in reflecting upon your past, you're doing history. And they were the first 
uh, peoples to do it, of the uh, the peoples of the ancient Near East. And it's that written tradition that reaches all the way into the present. Uh, you, can, you can follow the evolution of it. So the point that I'm making with that is uh, the complexity uh, of the ancient Near East uh, is wonderful and the, uh, the culture and the richness of it uh, very, very important. I think a lot of, I, I think if, if we were to bring it back to the Hebrew Bible uh, and, and really have that as a context for this particular question, thinking about, um, you know, students that we would have even watching this or, or, or maybe some in your audience with regard to the church, I think some of the misconceptions that we have um, is that somehow the ancient Near East itself is vastly different from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and what we what we what we find is though there are differences in particulars at times, uh, it is very much at home, you know, within the context of that world. Uh, we take the legal tradition that we were just talking about. Uh, we were talking about treaties and covenants. Uh, but if we if we think about Hammurabi's law code, as you mentioned, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, law of Talion is is very much part of the Mosaic uh, legal tradition. Uh, as much as it is uh, in the ancient Near Eastern tradition. And I, I personally have found that there is a, just a deep, I, I like to say a deep ethic about the people of the ancient Near East, especially for um, the other and the love of neighbor. I mean, it, it's no coincidence then that within the legal tradition, uh, you know, we have Deuteronomy, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, so it, it, it's not, what I want to say is it, it's not an accident that that comes from the ancient Near East is my point. Yeah. That those, that those texts do. I, we, we want to say that it is, but, but I assure you, as you get deep into the, the legal tradition, the ethical tradition, you find it's not. It's I wonder if you could, home. I wonder if you could share your, uh, in my opinion, you have the absolute best email signature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember when I first yeah. saw that, I this just, is great. Yeah. it was, yeah. it was and just I, fantastic. I found this quote during my uh, doctoral work. Let me pull it up here. Um, and you, you have it, uh, I guess just to, you know, they won't be able to see this, but you have the actual Akkadian. Yeah, so you have Akkadian yeah. language and then the English translation. So I remember yeah. getting an email from you, and then I see this Akkadian text at the bottom with English translation. <laughs> I'm like, this is fantastic. Yeah. So this, this is good. This is uh, straight out of my, my published work. So pay back with a good deed him who does you wrong. Act justly toward your enemy. And this comes straight out of the Neo-Assyrian wisdom tradition. And, and really, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, I mean, that's, I mean, pay back. Somebody who does you evil, pay them back with good. Act justly towards your enemy. Uh, this is this is the gospel message, right? These are the teachings of Paul and Christ Himself, and so we we can see that that wisdom tradition, that ethical tradition of the ancient Near East, uh, I think, is stemming its way all all the way into uh, into the first century, even uh, because they're thinking upon the Hebrew Bible, which is an ancient Near Eastern uh, text in that sense. So. Um, yeah, go ahead. So, a um, so kind of backtracking a little bit earlier, you painted the picture of the region of the ancient Near East, going mm -hmm. from the you know the the Fertile Crescent, mm -hmm. um, all the way to the Levant and everywhere in, in that. I wonder, could you 
maybe paint a picture of the different people groups. You've already mentioned the Hittites, yeah. you know, Neo-Assyrians, Babylonians. Like, yeah. who are the major people groups? Obviously, I know there's a lot, so you could maybe just yeah. choose some that you're interested in. But yeah. who are some of the major players or maybe characters, you could say, to this ancient Eerie yeah. story? And maybe give us a, a character trait or two about these different people groups. And, yeah. and you know, yeah. maybe even how they maybe connect to the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I mean, of course, we have the uh, the people of Akkad. They're the ones who uh, adopt cuneiform writing from the Sumerians uh, and apply it to their Semitic language. Uh, and from there, uh, writing uh, just spreads exponentially. We also have the Babylonians. And of course, we're, we're really looking at present-day Iraq, the Babylonians more towards the south, the Assyrians towards the north. Uh, and um, uh, right there along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, after them, right around, I mean, and this is when civilization is, is, is really booming at that time. Um, uh, we have a group of people called the Amorites. This is really interesting. The Amorites who are from that perspective of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Amorites are West. Uh, and they're even referred to that uh, in the Akkadian language of the people of the West. And so mm. they seem to comprise the hill country and mountainous regions in Syria, maybe even north of that. I've read uh, Dan Fleming on this, uh, has some really interesting work. Uh, and at some point during uh, the end of the uh, third uh, of the fourth millennium there, um, moving into the, uh, I'm sorry, moving into the um, well, no, moving into the third millennium, uh, uh, the Amorites take power and they sort of become the Babylonian leaders uh, of that particular time. But it's, a, it's sort of a Western move that happens. And these were shepherds. These were pastoralists uh, that were moving down from the north. Uh, and they um, uh, are in areas like Mari and others. This is where Hammurabi comes from. He's from the Amorite tribe. And the reason it's pretty significant uh, for the Hebrew Bible, especially to think about these peoples, is um, the trajectory that Abraham takes is not so different from the, projector, the, the, the trajectory that uh, the Amorites would be taking around that same uh, time period, actually. Oh, Dan, interesting. Yeah. So Dan Fleming talks about this in uh, in a work that uh, that he's published in in, in recent years. Um, for example, the Akkadian text that we have at Mari, they have a lot of Northwest Semitisms to them. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, when you read that when you read that particular Akkadian, which we will do uh, in my course, it, it's very interesting to look uh, at that sort of cultural background linguistically. Uh, and what's happening there at Mari, which which tells us a lot about what's happening in the Northwest Semitic world at that time. Because, you know, I'm throwing around these, you know, these terms of the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia, and we have Egypt. But when we really uh, get down into the Hebrew Bible, we really want to focus in especially upon the West Semitic and the Northwest Semitic world. Because, you know, the peoples that are living in this area are going to have um, the most relative information uh, for comparing to uh, the Hebrew Bible. It's not to say that Mesopotamia and Egypt, that that's not important. It is important. I think we should start there generally and then move into the particulars here. So after the Amorites, I know the Kusites come along and the Hittites, and, uh, and then we move along uh, from there further, uh, getting around to the time of the United Kingdom and ancient Israel and all of that. So... 
So are the Amorites, are they in power much during the time of Israel? And if I remember right, aren't the Amorites, isn't that one of the words used as a synonym for Canaanites in some it of the biblical story? And that's the, that's the very interesting piece is that in the biblical narrative, it, it speaks of them as the people of the hill country, which seems to be the case historically, whether that, uh, so that, that seems to be information coming down from, from times past. Uh, that those Amorites uh, were in fact Canaanites, and they were. I mean, when we say Canaanite, this is this is part of the issue with uh, the term Canaanite, is it really refers to the people of Canaan, and the people of Canaan themselves are quite diverse. You know, you've got these different um, city states that exist, and um, they don't all uh, agree on. Uh, I mean, they're not of the same culture. Uh, there's a lot of distinctives within those particular cultures. Um, so yes, they do have great, um, the, the, they're in power. I mean, up in, I think up until around, uh, the six, 16th, 15th centuries BCE. And then the Kusites come around and, uh, and then the Hittites as, as where well. So, where do the, um, so where do the Ugaritic people come into play with this? Mm, so I know yeah. there's, there's a, by the way, I don't know if people might enjoy this is a fun story of how we discovered the Ugaritic text. Wasn't it some farmer? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. in in Syria, basically, uh-huh. he's just plowing his field, runs into something, and underneath is a treasure trove of ancient yeah. texts. I think it was like nineteen twenties or something. I forget when yeah. this was all. Yeah, at Rosh Shamra. Yeah, this seems to be the case with all ancient texts, doesn't it? They're just all discovered by, <laughs> by yeah. accident, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the like. But um, yeah, so the Rosh Shamra texts that we find, or the Ugarit texts that we find, are uh, northwest. Uh, a Northwest Semitic people uh, that lived, you know, around between about 14th uh, century BC, right until the ancient Near East goes dark around 1200 BCE, and they disappear and, uh, mm-hmm. from history. But their texts are very important uh, for uh, the study of the Hebrew Bible because it gives us insight into the Northwest Semitic world, their language. You've studied Ugar- Ugaritic, yeah? Did yep. you take it here at uh, at ORU? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So. You know, it's cuneiform script, but it's an alphabetic script, uh, and uh, many of the words very close because it's Northwest Semitic uh, to uh, to Hebrew, uh, and it tells us a lot about the religious traditions of those peoples during that time. And of course, that's very close to uh, if we were to date Moses around uh, the time of the Ramesses II. It's very close to uh, the Israelites coming into that particular uh, area. So. Um, yeah, so uh, amazing finds that we have in the ancient Near East. Uh, you know, we talked about, I sent you that article of the find regarding trigonometry in the ancient Near East. Yes, Arabia. tell us about this. This is fascinating. Yeah. This is just a few so, weeks ago. Yeah, just a few uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I believe it was Dr. Daniel Mansfield of the University of New South Wales uh, 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 translated successfully a 3,700-year-old Akkadian tablet that revealed that the ancient Babylonians knew trigonometry. <laughs> so changes everything we know about uh, about math and, and where it originated, I guess you would say. Because so. that that pulls that pushes it back a thousand years from when yeah. we th- I forget who it was, yeah. Pythagoras. I can't right. remember who, uh, one of the Greek, one of the Greek mathematicians yeah. who he was originally the one credited with discovering or inventing, I don't really know how we phrase that trigonometry. Yeah. And whereas we see there are people in engineering to do this. Yeah. Okay. And that's the amazing, and that's, that's really what I want to, I want to hit home with that is the, um, these peoples were advanced when we, people tend to think of ancient history as, as primitive peoples and we shouldn't pay attention to uh, what's going on back there, but we really should because 
Um, it's part of our Western tradition uh, very much. It's embedded in our own culture uh, because of uh, the Hebrew Bible, especially because of the Hebrew Bible uh, and Judaism and Christianity. So, um, yeah. So obviously the relevance for Hebrew Bible studies is tremendous. But on the other hand, this is just another fascinating world to explore just as another human being on planet Earth learning about our history, yeah. learning about other no, cultures. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, I love history. And for me, generally, the, the farther back in time we go and the further away from America you move geographically is the more interested I will be in. That's just kind of a... <laughs> As a standard, my when I took American history classes, uh, my favorite part of American history class was the first week. And every week that we moved beyond the first week, I enjoyed it less and less. The closer we get to the modern era, I just don't enjoy it. So I'm, I'm a big nerd of ancient history. I think it's fascinating. I've been on a huge kick learning about Old Norse language and or, Old Norse mythology. Super fun. And ancient Near East is just another fascinating realm of knowledge yeah. and there are so many people who they dedicate their lives to studying the ancient near east people uh, and they're not even thinking about biblical studies they, they do it because there's so many languages to learn and the people yeah. groups to learn about and, that's what you know, and we, good and we, and we still have a lot of cuneiform tablets that have not been translated so if there's anyone out there that's interested in, in ancient near eastern uh, in this discussion you can easily uh, pursue becoming an assyriologist and join in on that work so so not to put you on the spot here, but if you if you had to say, this is my favorite people group of the ancient Near East to study, or this is my favorite era or set of texts, you know, you could answer them as one question or all separate to three of that type of thing. How how would what would you what would you say? I am. Oh, that's a great question. I don't even I don't even know if I can answer that because the further back I go, the more I, the more I begin to uh, really uh, to enjoy it. Um, I think one area that I've really enjoyed studying is the Elamarna letters uh, under Akhenaten uh, in, at Tel Elamarna um, from roughly around uh, the 13th century BCE. And what these letters are are correspondence letters uh, between the Pharaoh of Egypt, Akhenaten, and uh, the vassal city-states that he has in the land of Canaan. And so what's great about these letters in Akkadian is the uh, people of the land of Canaan at that time are writing back in Akkadian, but there are all sort of West Semitisms within the Akkadian itself. Uh, and it's just fascinating to read uh, those particular texts from the Elamarna uh, archive. And I really enjoy that particular time period in Egypt's history uh, in studying it as well as in um, uh, uh, the land of Canaan at the time. It really gives us a great picture of what was happening uh, uh, in, in that particular region. So that's one area that I've really enjoyed. Uh, I, I like studying the, uh, the history of the Egyptians. I've really enjoyed uh, doing that as a people group. I don't, um, I, I don't know that I can pick a favorite other than maybe these Amorites are quite interesting. Uh, studying the texts of Mari, I've really enjoyed a lot. It's really opened up my eyes to uh, uh, to different religious traditions in the ancient Near East uh, that I think are, are quite interesting and, and important. So, so speaking of Egypt, we haven't talked much about them in our conversation yet. Any yeah. any thoughts you'd give on uh, just a little intro to Egypt or well, anything from there? <laughs> yeah, Again. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Egypt is going right alongside Mesopotamia and, uh, and the greater ancient Near East at that time. Uh, and their own history is uh, extremely rich, too, you know, with uh, 
the written tradition that develops there as well. Uh, and of course, uh, the various ideas that they have. The interesting thing is how similar uh, many of the ideas can be between the two, um, uh, the two peoples uh, living, you know, right, you know, they're North, North Africa is not, not up near the Tigris and the Euphrates, but nevertheless, the peoples of that time period were having similar ideas. For example, their emphasis on order. I mean, uh, 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 high order uh, in all parts of society was something that was very much desired, or like I said, the ethical and legal traditions of, uh, of both the Egyptian and the, and the Mesopotamians uh, can give us a lot uh, of information. So the Egyptians have great influence at different points in ancient Near Eastern history. Uh, and at sometimes their, their influence stretches well up into the land of Canaan and beyond, and at other times it wanes and it comes back. Uh, and as you know, for the Hebrew Bible, it's, it's very essential, uh, the whole uh, Egyptian story and Egyptian history. So um, lots of lots of very interesting uh, points there as well. So, to, to really so I just have a couple more questions. Uh, the first one I'll do is just probably more open-ended. Is there any other just random cultural in, or historical insights that you just, you just want to share something that when you think about the ancient Near East, uh, that's on your mind. I know we've shared quite a few already today, but just want to leave it open and in case there's any that you're wanting to share. Yeah. Um, no, I don't have anything major uh, to say other than, uh, well, I will say this. I mean, not necessarily about uh, the ancient Near East specifically, but I do think, and this is true of all knowledge, Currently, I mean, because we live in the digital age, the internet age, and all of that, I do think access to the study of the ancient Near East is much more available now uh, for students uh, than it has been uh, uh, at any at, at any point in times past. Uh, there's just a lot of good works out there uh, that can help you to understand this culture and these peoples um, very well. So. Well, that actually segued to my last question I want to ask you, which is, you know, obviously the first one we can say, basically, if someone wants to learn more about the ancient Near East, and they also want to learn more about how this, because frankly, this is just a fascinating field to get into, but also it's very relevant for Hebrew Bible studies. And if someone's interested, they want to do more. I know one thing they can do is, or you teach at Oral Roberts University, and we, um, you know, people can major in Old Testament. Uh, and we also offer a lot of different ancient languages. In fact, even Akkadian, you'll be teaching that. ORU has not offered Akkadian for, for a while. It's been, yeah. I don't know how many years it's been, but we're offering yeah. Akkadian again because you're here. So if anyone is looking for to a university and they want to go and learn that, you know, you teach here. Outside of that, is there anything else you would, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, what's that class you teach where you go really in depth to all this stuff? Remind me what it's called, the historical geography. Ah, right. Historical geography of the Holy Land. Yes. So this was, yeah, so that's very good. So that class, uh, it was originally taught by Dr. Newberg, I believe, but he has since passed it off to me. So I uh, have been teaching it here at ORU. It's coming up next spring, so spring 2022. So we have any ORU students listening, yep. uh, you should be looking for this class because yep. uh, we will be offering it. And it's really great. You know, Professor uh, Professor John Walton says, says this, you know, he says, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written uh, to us. It mm. was written to another people of another time and another culture. Mm. And that that chasm between us and them is separated by millennia, 
by cultures, by languages, and by geographical locations. And so the biblical writers, when you're when you're reading the Hebrew Bible, they they sort of assume that you know what they're talking about, right? With with toponyms and place place names or toponyms as we call them. Uh, they 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 expect that you know it. And so in this particular class, apart from the study of maps and geography, which is what we'll be doing, and archaeology, uh, we will also read actual texts in the class. So this is what makes it historical geography, because again, history is um, the writing down of what we are reflecting on that happened in the past. So it's a reflection upon what happened in the past written down. Uh, and so we will be reading texts from all of these different peoples from different time periods relevant to things that we that happen in the Hebrew Bible, so relevant to stories in the Hebrew Bible, in order to have a historical geography of uh, the Hebrew Bible or uh, of, 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 the, of that particular area. And the difference is, you know, you can study archaeology, but archaeology um, is material culture, and so it has to be interpreted. And without a text, you just have to come up with an interpretation. So historical geography is beyond just geography. It's bringing in the historical aspect through textual data that we have in texts that have been written and left to us. So, um, so for example, I'll give you I'll give you an example. So if we read Ruth here, let me pull it up. If we were to read Ruth one one, uh, Ruth I don't know if it's one one. It's Ruth. Uh, uh, yeah, Ruth one two. It says. So we have them that they came to the fields of Moab. Um, so, for example, historical geography, they assume you know what you're talking about, what, what's happening here. Um, linguistically, if we go back to a cognate of Akkadian, Shadum, which means mountains, it would make the most sense here that these are sort of the mountains of Moab or the country of Moab, you could say. But if you're in Jerusalem and you're eating a cheese sandwich, studying Hebrew at the Hebrew University, and you look out your window, you can see the fields of Moab. It's the mountains of Jordan, right? I mean, it's just right there to the east. And so it changes the perspective of the stories when you have a historical geographical uh, understanding of what's happening. I really wish you were in, we were, me and Dr. Lyons, we were teaching a biblical Hebrew class together and going through Ruth. This question actually came up and <laughs> someone asked, so what's the significance okay. of the fields of Moab? And my gosh, I wish you were there to give this insight. That's wow. so interesting. interesting. So somebody actually asked this question. Fascinating. Okay. Yes. So Yeah. Well, and that's so right. So the writer, the writer expects uh, you to know it. So where the fields of Moab are. It also adds to the story too. If you think about Naomi and Ruth, when they're coming back from the fields of Moab to Judah, it doesn't really talk about the trek, but boy, what a trek that must've been <laughs> Wow! for the two of them to get all the way back to, uh, to Bethlehem. So it's uh, just another example of how it brings the text to life because we, does, you know, yeah. we get to so much richer. We see more dimensions. Um, the Bible isn't just 2D, it becomes 3D or, um, although I don't really care for 3D movies. I don't know why that is. Um, it's a bad analogy for myself. <laughs> but I, I think sometimes when we read the Bible, what we imagine is we see characters with no background setting whatsoever. It's just blank. Yeah. You know, so when we imagine the story of Ruth and Naomi, we see two women and nothing is in the background of our mind. There's there's yeah. no picture we have. And so including the trek, for example, it's just, okay, they're just walking and there's a, there, might, there might as well be a green screen or just a blank white 
sheet behind them and studying ancient Near East, it adds in richness of, of, of a setting in a world in which all this is happening. That adds layers yeah. to our both appreciation and enjoyment of the stories, as well as to our insights for things that are meaningful for understanding yeah. the stories. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I mean, that's just so true. Yeah, so true. And if you, if you, if you go to Israel, you, you know that firsthand, right? Uh, you, the, the texts come alive in ways that, uh, that, that they, they, they won't come alive if you haven't been. So, so, uh, this class is awesome. So if you're listening to this, especially if you're over you right now, sign up for this class. My, I, I can tell you this, my modern Hebrew students, any of them who've taken your class, it's one of their favorite classes they've taken at ORU. They, every semester, <laughs> yes, I, is, without talking to you, I know when that class is going on because in my class they're talking about it. So that'd be a great thing for people to sign up for. <laughs> So lastly, then, um, outside of these options, are there any certain resources you would recommend? Maybe you can give a few for someone at more of the beginner level, maybe a few more advanced that you would just recommend just some of your personal favorites for people getting into yeah. engineering stuff. Yeah, I mean, there, I'm trying to think if I have a, 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 good, a good book. Um, I like the uh, the lost world series by professor john walton um i think would be a very good series uh, i think the lost world of the ancient near east i believe that's the name of the book i'd have to look here um would be an excellent introduction um here's a number of number of those books that lost world series become pretty popular so um I know there's the Lost World of uh, Genesis one. No, no, I'm sorry, it's not the Lost World series. He has he has a book called Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. I think that's an excellent book into uh, into the study of the ancient Near East with with thinking about the Old Testament. So definitely for many in our audience here at ORU, that would be a great one to study ancient Near Eastern thought and the Old Testament. Um, apart from that. There are many introductions to the ancient Near East available um, uh, uh, out there. And so a basic study uh, and, and looking through Google will, will do you just fine. Uh, more so, there's some really great lectures that you can find on YouTube as well regarding introduction to the ancient Near East and the history of the ancient Near East. Um, so it's quite replete of what is available. But I do think... For our audience, the ancient Near Eastern thought in the Old Testament would be an excellent introduction. Uh, from there, there are there are quite a few scholars and um, and and other sort of subgenres uh, that you can you can you can flow out into. So so for example, there's another one I really like. Um, let's see, I don't know if I have it here. Let me look and see. Yeah. So. Two books that have recently been published that I really love. This one's great. The World Around the Old Testament, uh, by uh, edited by Bill Arnold and Brent Strawn. This book is fantastic if you want to learn about the peoples of the ancient Near East that are around the Old Testament. Uh, and apart from the fact that it is written um, to talk about the world around the Old Testament, it itself, I think, works as a fantastic introduction to the ancient Near East. So some of the best scholars that we have working in ancient Near Eastern studies have published articles in this particular work. It is, it is a wonderful, wonderful introduction. So Very cool. I have one last super nerdy question because I'm such a language nerd about this stuff. And hopefully there's <laughs> at least a few others listening who feel the same. If you were to, uh, obviously there are a few at least a few languages relevant for ancient Near East studies. Yeah. Uh, if you were just to, 
if someone's like, Hey, I love ancient Near East. I love languages. Uh, and they just don't know how, how do I choose which one, which one should I choose to just start with first? Obviously some of this is, is preferential. Some people like a certain region yeah. more than another. Some will yeah. find they enjoy a certain language more than another. But if you were just to give your personal opinion on, on, um, an order of languages to learn or what to start with, or what's the most important one to go with. Do you, what would your opinion be on this? Sumerian. No, I'm joking. So <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would go with, um, well, really, I, I think, I think for comparative Semitics, um, Hebrew is a great one to start with because, uh, Hebrew has such a rich and large tradition. Uh, it would be, uh, a good, uh, language to begin with. From there, you can move into other uh, Semitic languages like Akkadian, like Ugaritic. Um, you could do, uh, I think Arabic is also very important as well, to be honest, as far as um, sort of the modern languages are concerned. But with the ancient, I think Hebrew is your best option for a starting language. I really do. I think it's, I think it's the best place to start. I'm sure you have found that true uh, in your own life. Uh, when we when we start doing Akkadian, um, you, your your world will be opened up to um, the the blessing that is comparative Semitic. So, um, though I know you've studied other Semitic languages, Akkadian really just brings uh, brings it to life in a way that uh, maybe some of the others um, don't. So no, it's it's amazing. I mean, comparing Hebrew to uh, Aramaic to or Syriac, just I guess later Aramaic. Um, even Moabite, we don't have a lot of it, but compared to the little Moabite we have is yeah. fascinating, Ugaritic, uh, but Akkadian, like you said, we have thousands, thousands of yeah. texts. I mean, so the yeah. number, the sheer number overwhelms every other Semitic language. And so I'm excited yeah. to experience a whole new world, uh, with this. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed this, and uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. And hopefully, this adds to another resource for people to learn with some of the ancient Near East. Just get a little little taste for this. And uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on the on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me.